If you take your Bibles, turn along with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Well, today is Palm Sunday. The day when we acknowledge and celebrate the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna. It was the event that kicked off the momentous week that was Jesus' Passion Week. And you remember the story of Jesus' triumphal entry, how he intentionally rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And as the crowds lined the streets of Jerusalem on that Sunday, they were waving palm branches and laying down their coats and the palm branches on the ground before Jesus as he rode over them. Listen to how the Apostle John, as an eyewitness to these things, records this event for us in John chapter 12. In verse 12, John says, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast... When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. And he began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus was in that moment fulfilling scripture and accepting praise reserved for the Messiah alone. And he was and is indeed Israel's messianic king, and he was entering Jerusalem on that day in fulfillment of these prophecies. But he is so much more than just Israel's king. His death and resurrection would result in his being king over all, as our text will show us. This morning, we're going to continue our study in Colossians chapter 1, a study we began last week in verses 15 through 20. And we said that this section of scripture, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is in poetic format. It's written with a poetic style. Perhaps it was even a well-known hymn that Paul here is picking up on and quoting and altering in some ways to meet his own purposes. There's evidence that it has been written as a chiasmus with two sets of ten corresponding lines. The first set of ten lines is found in verses 15 through 17, which we covered last week. These lines all relate to Christ's preeminence over the first creation, the created world, the universe, and all that is. The second set of 10 lines, beginning in verse 18 and going through verse 20, which we're going to cover this morning, that's where we're going to focus our attention, this set of 10 lines focuses on Christ's preeminence and rule over the new creation. The new creation being the work of Christ in making all things new through his substitutionary death and victorious resurrection. 
Christ in this new creation is restoring the creation to its perfect state before the fall. So with all of that in mind, I want us to read together this whole section again, knowing that our focus is just going to be on verses 18 through 20 this morning. So let me read it for us. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. See if you can spot the first creation in verses 15 through 17, and then the new creation and Christ's preeminence over all of it in verses 18 through 20. Let me begin in verse 15. He... Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body. The church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious passage, which um, really causes us to consider the true identity of Jesus, his glorious identity as the sovereign creator of the first creation and as the Sovereign Lord and King over the new creation. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful to you that you are a good and gracious King. A King who rules in justice and righteousness. A King who will restore justice and righteousness to the earth. A King who will restore all things to the way they ought to be. We're grateful this morning that we know as Christians where all things are headed. We don't know what today holds. We don't really know what tomorrow holds. But we know what the future holds. Ultimately, we know that you are going to restore all things and set all things right. You are going to establish peace and justice and righteousness through all the earth. Indeed, through all the universe. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the truth of your word and for the hope of the future that we as Christians have. Show us this hope again today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned that these verses, verses 15 through 20, form a chiasmus. And chiasmus is a, is a poetic form, a device used to artfully arrange corresponding lines of truth that are in thematic juxtaposition to one another. And with such an arrangement, the middle of this juxtaposition is what is emphasized. And in this case, the line that has the emphatic position in the middle is the statement that comes in verse 17, in him all things hold together. 
in Christ, all things hold together. That is, in our minds, that would be in bold, or it would be in italics, or it would be underlined. What an appropriate truth to have at the center. That Jesus is at the center of all things, holding it all together. The poet William Butler Yeats, in his poem, The Second Coming, speaking of the turmoil and chaos of life in the world, wrote these words, Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. You ever feel that way? Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Well, despite all the turmoil of a fallen world, we know that indeed the center does hold. For Christ is at the center of all things, holding it all together. This is true of the creation in its fallen state, and it's true now in the new creation in which Christ is making all things new. So this morning, as we walk through verses 18 through 20, I want us to see five new creation proofs of Christ's preeminence. Five new creation proofs of Christ's preeminence. First of all, we see that Christ is the head of the body, the church. So far, in verses 15 through 17, Paul has declared the following truths about Christ. That Christ is the image of the invisible God. That he is the firstborn over all creation. That he is the creator of all things. That he is the end or the goal or the purpose of all things. That he pre-existed all things. And that now he sustains all things. And now in verse 18, in addition to all that has just been declared about Christ's relationship of preeminence to the first creation, the first order, now Paul states that Christ is also the head of the body, the church, part of the new creation. And here Paul is shifting from Christ's rule and preeminence of the first creation to Christ's rule and preeminence over the new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. This new creation era and work began at Christ's resurrection and is ongoing, but is yet to be finally made complete. The days of the first order are almost over. We are in the end times, and we have been in the end times since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a new world coming. And this new creation, this new world, this transformation has already begun. It's already here. But it's not yet in its final form. Just as we are new creations in Christ, but not yet in our final perfected condition as Christians, 
So the rest of creation is awaiting the final stage of the new creation when all things will be made new and all things will be set aright once again. Revelation 21.5, words of Jesus, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. The church here now is God's new creation in Christ. It is the universal church that Paul has in mind here and has in view, which of course includes every true local church and every believer individually. Each member of the church individually makes up the church universal. But he's looking at this from a corporate standpoint, a universal standpoint all believers everywhere of every age the church is said to be the body over which christ serves as head now the body metaphor is used several times in the new testament to refer to the relationship between christ and the church and between members of the church The church is the body and Christ is the head. Now in this metaphor, it's not difficult to understand what head means. The headship of Jesus Christ. It means the position of authority and rule and preeminence. Where the head goes, the body goes. If the body goes somewhere and the head doesn't go there, you've got major problems. You have been decapitated. The head determines the direction and the mission-fulfilling purpose of the body, right? The head is where we get our marching orders and tells our fingers what to do on our feet, where to walk, and how quickly. Even so, Christ is the head of the body, the church. This is the truth we must, as the church, as cross and crown church, must never forget. The church universal and every local church is included in that is not something over which we have ultimate authority. The church is not ours to do with what we will. The church belongs to Christ. He is her head. And as the head, he deserves the preeminence. Every local church must continually ensure that Christ is given his faithful place at the center. By keeping the scriptures central, how do we know what Christ wants for the church? He's he's shared it with us. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Christ is only central to the church and the head of the church. And we're acknowledging that only to the degree that we keep his word central to who we are, what we believe, and how we function. That Christ is acknowledged as the head of the church is the church's continual need. No pastor, no elder, no deacon, no church member, No board or team or committee, no faction, 
No group within the church is ever to be made head of the church. For that is a position reserved for Jesus Christ alone. We are but members of his body. Christ alone being the head. And we look to him as our head, as our authority and our source of life. So the first part of this new creation mentioned is the church. And Jesus Christ clearly is given the position of preeminence and prominence and priority within that new creation, the church. He is its head, the head of the body. That's the first proof of Christ's preeminence over the new creation. Second proof, Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Paul continues here in verse 18. Stating that Christ is the beginning. Now, we've already seen that Christ pre-existed the first creation and created all things. We saw last week how in John 1, 1, it says that in the beginning, the Word was the Word, rather, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. The same word that John used there in John 1, 1 for the beginning of the first creation is used here in reference to Christ and the new creation. He is the beginning of the new creation. He himself kicked it off. He himself inaugurated this new creation through his death, burial, and resurrection. Here in Colossians 1.18, Christ is said to be the beginning of the new creation. A new era inaugurated by Christ rising from the dead. And so Christ is the beginning. And that beginning is further described as his being the firstborn from the dead. Now here we have this term firstborn again. You remember we, we looked into that last week from verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And as we looked at that term there, we saw that it didn't mean that Christ was a created being or the first of the created beings or the preeminent of all the created beings, no. Or that Christ had had a beginning, no, we know that wasn't true. For he pre-existed all that is. But that firstborn is a term that is being used here as a metaphor for a person who is first in authority and priority. First in position. As Christ is the firstborn over creation, even so he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first one having risen from the dead never to die again. He is the first one risen from the dead unto life everlasting. Christ wasn't the first one to be raised from the dead, was he? Just think of Lazarus, right? But Lazarus went on to die again, right? He had a, he had a momentary reprieve from the clutches of death brought about by the power of Jesus Christ. But eventually, Lazarus went on to die again. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead, the first one to die. To rise from the dead, never to die again. He is the first one, but he is not the last. 
All those who die in the Lord, that is, those who die with their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, will be resurrected from the dead at Christ's second coming. And at the moment of their death, they depart, their soul departs, and is immediately in God's presence. But Christ is the firstborn of all those who will rise again. And as the firstborn, Christ has authority and preeminence. Easter Sunday, and indeed every Sunday, is a celebration of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead unto eternal life. Now giving that same eternal life and hope of resurrection to all who look to him in faith. It is a joyful acknowledgement and declaration that this truth, the truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead, changes everything. Every Sunday, we declare the way things really are. Every Sunday, we declare where all things are truly headed. And all of it rests upon the central truth that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The truth of Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our salvation and of our own future resurrection and of the fulfillment of all of God's promises. All of it rooted and grounded in Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. The third proof of Christ's preeminence over the new creation and from the new creation is that Christ will have first place over everything. The purpose or result of Christ being the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, is so that he would come to have first place in everything. That's what it says at the end of verse 18. That he would come to have first place in everything. That he will be in the first position, first in rank, first in importance, first in authority, first in honor. Friends, this is where everything is headed. This is the great end and purpose for which God created the world. It is the great end and purpose for which God has given you life. That Jesus Christ would come to have first place in everything. The exaltation of God's Son to the place of preeminence over all else. Philippians 2, I want you to turn there with me. Just to your left, probably a page. Philippians 2. Paul exhorts the Philippian believers to, in verse 5 of chapter 2, to have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or slave and being made in the likeness of men, 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, that is where all history, all of the present, and all of the future is headed. Paul gives us a little clearer vision of where all things are headed in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read it for you. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again ties the certainty of all the promises of God to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 26. Listen to what Paul says there and how he connects the first creation with the new creation. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after, those, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Christ has secured absolute victory over all of his enemies, over all sin, and even over the last enemy, death. He's done so through his own death and his own resurrection. The result of all of this is that Christ is going to have first place over everything. It's already true. This is already established. This is part of the already but not yet of the Christian's belief and of the Bible's teaching. Christ is already seated at the right hand of the Father. He already possesses all rule. Jesus said as he was ascending to the throne of, of his Father. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ is already king. He's already ruling. But the, the full implications and the final form of that rule has yet to be realized. Both in our own lives and certainly in the world around us. The kingdom and the rule of Christ is already, but not yet. It's already inaugurated, but not yet fully realized. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has secured that reality for all time and eternity. Jesus Christ is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. And he will have the first place over everything. That is where all things are headed. Fourthly, Christ is the dwelling place of God's fullness. He is the dwelling place 
of God's fullness. Why is Jesus Christ going to have first place in everything? Well, the answer comes to us in verse 19. He will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Jesus is going to have first place in everything because he is God in the flesh. He is the God-man. He is truly God and truly man. Now the language of dwelling here that Paul uses, or filling or fullness, harkens back to the Old Testament where God dwelt among his people by filling the temple with his presence. Locally residing among his people, there in the Holy of Holies, upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The locality of God's presence was known to be there in the temple as the temple served as the centerpiece of Jewish society. And at the center of the temple was God himself, dwelling among his people, filling the temple with the fullness of his presence. In fact, Paul here seems to use some key words from Psalm 68.16, a psalm speaking of God's dwelling on Mount Zion, the place of the temple and the center of his presence among his people. But we know from the history of Israel that because of Israel's repeated stubbornness and disobedience, the the presence of God left the temple and it was called Ichabod. The glory of the Lord is departed. But we also know from the rest of Scripture that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law as a human being. A baby born and given the divinely ordained name of Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves. God saves. And God saves through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. John 1.14, remind you what that says. The Word became flesh. The eternal Word, the eternal wisdom of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was God in human flesh. Jesus was truly God and truly human. Jesus was one person, but with two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. As we touched on last week, the truth of the Trinity, the fact that God is one God, but three in person, is a little difficult for us to understand. That's an understatement, by the way. But so is the truth that Jesus is one person with two natures. That too is difficult for us to understand. But just as with the Trinity, the creeds here prove really helpful to us in understanding rightly Jesus is one person and two natures. 
Creeds, as I said last week, help us to distill, synthesize, and articulate the truth of Scripture's teaching and provide helpful guardrails to keep us from saying dumb things, unhelpful things, confusing things, untruthful things, unbiblical things. As we saw last week, the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed are really helpful in clarifying what we believe the Bible teaches about the Trinity. And in this case, the Creed of Chalcedon from the 5th century, okay, we're playing the old hits, right? The 5th century helps us to carefully articulate the biblical truth that Jesus is both God and man. I'm going to quote from it here. All right, the Creed of Chalcedon, listen to what it says about Jesus being both God and man, two natures in one person, Jesus Christ. Here's what the Creed of Chalcedon says, we then, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think you can approve on that. It'll take you the rest of your life to fully plumb the depths of the truth of that. It was God the Father's good pleasure, as Paul says here, for all the fullness of deity to dwell in Jesus Christ. Whereas before God's presence had been localized in the temple, now Jesus Christ has become God's temple for us. God dwelling among mankind, not in brick and mortar, but in flesh and blood. Colossians 2.9 reiterates this truth. And it says, For in Him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is God in the flesh. And that is why He is preeminent over all things, the first creation and the new creation. And one day, Jesus will come to have the realized actuality of having first place in everything. When all is made right and all is rightly submitted to Jesus Christ. That brings us to our final proof New creation proof, 
of Jesus' preeminence, and that is that Christ is God's chosen instrument for the reconciliation of all things. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Verse 20 clearly says that through Jesus, God is going to reconcile all things to himself. Jesus is the divinely chosen instrument for universal reconciliation. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean, theologically speaking, the position of universalism. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to end up in heaven one way or the other. Many have tried to say that this verse teaches some form of universalism. That in the end, everyone is going to be saved. But that would clearly contradict what much of the rest of Scripture clearly teaches. The Bible's very clear that not everyone is going to be saved. Jesus himself clearly stated in Matthew 25, 46, that there are, in fact, two very different eternal destinations for our souls, for human souls, depending upon whether or not we believe in Jesus as our Savior. Those who reject Jesus will go away to eternal punishment, and those who trust in him will go away to eternal life and blessedness and joy. So all of those who do not trust in Jesus Christ for salvation will experience eternal conscious punishment in hell as a just judgment for sin and rebellion against our Creator. So not everyone is going to be saved. So that can't possibly be what verse 20 means. So what does it mean? Well, the truth that God is going to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus means that Jesus is himself the central figure and dividing line between eternal life and eternal condemnation. All things are going to be rightly reconciled. The books are going to be put into order. All things are going to be made right in the sense that they are going to be arranged in their proper order. And placed eternally, once and for all, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. One way or the other, all mankind will be brought to submission to God and to his son, Jesus Christ. Either a submission through faith during this life, or a submission through force at the end of the age. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2. It is this submission to Jesus that is in view here that is part of the reconciliation of all things. The peace that Christ has secured through his blood, mentioned here in verse 20, picks up on this rich 
Old Testament concept of peace. It may be the one Hebrew word you're most familiar with. Shalom. Peace. Shalom has the sense that everything is rearranged and ordered and made to be as it should be. Everything in its place. That all is right with the world. All that went wrong in the universe because of Adam and Eve's sin and the curse of the fall has now been fundamentally and rightly restored through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's as though it's already in place. And yet we know while it's already here, it's not yet in its final form. All that went wrong has been fundamentally righted through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Though the final effects of this peace have yet to be fully realized, this peace has nonetheless been secured and guaranteed. All is set in motion. And this is where all things are headed. Jesus is God's chosen instrument for securing this peace, this shalom. And this peace comes by way of the blood of his cross. This is why Jesus will come to have first place in everything. Because through his own self-sacrifice, he has secured God's glory for all eternity. I ask you this. Do you know this peace in your soul today? Do you have this shalom, this this sense that all is right, that it is well with my soul? Though the storms may be raging around you, though life may seem utterly in chaos, nevertheless, you can say with confidence, it is well with my soul. Because of the blood of Christ's cross and his sacrifice. Is that something you have the assurance of today? The knowledge of? Jesus has come. And he has made peace by the blood of his cross. A peace that can be for you. A peace that can be yours by faith. Trusting in Jesus alone to be your Savior. Knowing that He bore your sins on the cross. Knowing that He on the cross took away your guilt. And the judgment that your sins justly deserved before God. And peace can be yours. Peace that the world knows not. Christian, remember, Christ's preeminence has been once and for all secured. The headlines in the papers, the word from the daily news on TV, 
the latest news coming across on Twitter doesn't acknowledge any of this. From their perspective, the unbeliever's perspective, the world has an unknown future, an uncertain future, a future filled with fear, a future that looks bleak. Christian, remember, the future is not bleak. The future is glorious. With Christ the head on the throne, setting all things right, having the preeminence over all else. He is going to come to have first place in everything. This is where all things are headed. Christian, ask yourself, am I living within the hope of this truth? Does my life reflect this reality? Am I anchoring myself to to Christ's peace, the shalom he's established already within my heart and is and will one day finally and fully establish on the earth? Am I resting in that peace that Christ has secured on my behalf? One day, all things will be reconciled and put in their proper place and all knees will bow and every tongue will confess God's shalom, God's peace will be reestablished over all things. This very same peace can rule right now in our hearts because Christ has died, was buried, and is risen again. And one day he's coming back and will establish that peace throughout all the earth. That, my friends, is where all things are headed. He will come to have first place over everything. Let's make sure he has first place in our lives today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are... Head over all. Head of the body, the church. Head of the new creation, preeminent. You are already in the foremost position at the right hand of the Father. You yourself said all authority has been given to you. Even now. So Lord, the world seems uncertain to us, but we know it is not uncertain to you. You've got the whole world in your hands. The center holds because you are at the center of all, holding it all together. Lord Jesus, we love you and we worship you as our Savior King. The King of kings and the Lord of lords the one who rules over all and has first place over everything. Help us to order our lives appropriately. Help us to rest in the peace that you have secured. Help us to look to the future with confidence, not in ourselves, not in our finances, not in our politics, not in our country, but looking to you as our great and glorious King who has established peace through the death 
burial, and resurrection. Thank you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.